welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. We're all over the place with decisions this week, five to be specific. And in immigration news, well, the circuits are all over the place too. The Sixth Circuit vacated a district court's enjoinment of the Biden administration's prosecutorial discretion guidance in Arizona v. Biden. But the very next day, in Texas v. USA, the Fifth Circuit upheld an injunction on pretty much the same issue, filed by pretty much the same states. Go figure. Let's travel to the less chaotic world of politics in Armenia. First up is Barsigian v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 8th, 2022. They're not all non-citizen adverse this week. I've got one win for you. This case is about credibility. Mr. Barsigian is from Armenia and applied for asylum in immigration court. He testified that he is a member of the HZHK, the anti-government opposition party also known as the People's Party of Armenia, and that he participated in a peaceful demonstration in 2008 to contest the results of an election. He testified that during a protest, he was knocked unconscious by police. He reported voting corruption and displayed images drawn by his wife of police violence at a bazaar in 2013. He testified that police arrested him a few days later, and a week later he was taken to a police station and beaten, drugged, forced to strip, put in a cold shower, and had bright lights shined in his face, among other things. He refused to sign a blank document, and then he was beaten until he lost consciousness. To the Ninth Circuit, quote, if all of this was believed, he clearly showed past persecution, end quote. But an IJ did not believe him relying on three purported inconsistencies between Mr. Barsigian's written declaration and in-court testimony, and the BIA affirmed. 
Under Ninth Circuit case law, if an immigration judge is going to rely on inconsistencies or implausibilities or omissions for that matter to make an adverse credibility finding, the IJ must, quote, point to specific instances in the record that support the adverse credibility determination, end quote, and provide the non-citizen an opportunity to explain. Then, quote, if the non-citizen offers an explanation that is reasonable and plausible, the IJ has to provide a specific and cogent reason for rejecting the explanation, end quote. So pretty specific requirements on IJs in the Ninth Circuit. Unmet here to the court. First, the IJ believed Mr. Varsigian inconsistent on how he got to a hospital, but there was no inconsistency to the Ninth Circuit. Instead, as sometimes occurs during cross-examination in immigration court, the inconsistency was the result of, quote, the government's framing on cross-examination. The government added, end quote, a phrase that Mr. Barsigian did not write in his declaration and then questioned him about the added phrase and tried to show that the whole thing was made up and inconsistent. Be vigilant in protecting your client during cross, my friends. The Ninth Circuit didn't disturb the IJs and the BIA's second inconsistency finding, but the third one was also a problem to the court. To the Ninth Circuit, it's not inconsistent that some government authorities, like police, will be searching for a non-citizen in that home country, but that others, like airport security, will permit the non-citizen to flee the country. It is error for the IJ and the BIA to assume that government officials and all police, quote, are all on the same page and operate with seamless efficiency, end quote. Also, the BIA erred in relying on an inconsistency that the IJ actually didn't rely on. And the IJ erred by finding the record uncorroborative because apparently the IJ ignored corroborating evidence. Accordingly, the IJ failed to consider the totality of the circumstances as an adverse credibility finding must do. So to the Ninth Circuit, one inconsistency remains. But under the Ninth Circuit's en banc decision in Alam v. Garland discussed on episode 72, That one inconsistency, now that it's lost all its inconsistent friends, doesn't necessarily support an adverse credibility finding by itself. So the Ninth Circuit remanded for a determination. Congratulations Kevin W. Harris and Ryan Friedman for petitioner. And that is Barsigian v. Garland. Moving on. We have Gudiel Toro v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on July 8, 2022. It's a short case about motions to reopen. Mr. Gudiel Toro entered the United States without authorization in 2005. He was apprehended, and he was served with the notice to appear. The NTA lacked the date, time, and location of his first removal hearing. DHS released Mr. Gudiel Toro on his own recognizance, and the decision isn't clear whether he provided DHS with an address that he could be reached at. But I mean he must have, because DHS wouldn't have released him if he hadn't, right? Either way, he moved to an address in Connecticut later, didn't update DHS or the immigration court, and never received his follow-up notice of hearing. He was ordered removed in absentia in 2005. After the Supreme Court's Pereira decision in 2019, but before Nez Chavez, he moved to reopen due to the deficiencies in his NTA. The IJ and the BIA denied. As did the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit denied despite very much recognizing its ruling in Rodriguez v. Garland and that decision's success over an en banc challenge earlier this year. 
Nevertheless, the panel held that, quote, petitioner is incorrect that his notice to appear needed to include the date and time of his removal proceeding, end quote. Pretty expansive quote, and actually the decision is a bit more narrow. According to the court, the Fifth Circuit later ruled in Spagnol Bastos v. Garland that the Rodriguez rule requiring reopening of an in absentia removal order when premised on a deficient NTA, quote, does not apply when the non-citizen fails to provide an address where he can be reached, end quote. So that's a pretty big Spagnol Bastos exception to the non-citizen favorable Rodriguez holding. According to the panel, this Spagnol-Bastos exception also applies where the non-citizen, quote, fails to provide any address, neglects to update an old address, or fails to correct an erroneous address, end quote. So there's your standard to avoid practitioners in the Fifth Circuit as you craft your Rodriguez motions to reopen and assist your clients with their supporting affidavits. The Fifth Circuit here reads the record and appears to believe that either no address was provided or Mr. Gudiel Toro failed to update his address. It's a bit unclear. But the Fifth Circuit upheld denial of the motion. The Fifth Circuit was unconcerned, like the BIA, by the fact that the NTA referred to Mr. Gudiel Toro by, quote, the wrong name and lists an incorrect country of origin, end quote. After all, said the court and the BIA, it appears that Mr. Gudiel Toro, quote, admitted to providing the false name and country of origin reflected on the notice to appear, end quote. Should be noted that he was 15 years old when all of this happened, one year shy of the regulatory floor that permits service of NTAs on minors when 14 years old or older. The Fifth Circuit therefore ruled against Mr. Gudiel Toro, who actually appears to be Mr. Carrillo Quinones. And that? is Gudiel Toro v. Garland. To the former Fifth Circuit and now Eleventh Circuit we go, with Davey U.S. Attorney General, published on July 6, 2022. This case is about CIMTs. Mr. Day is from Jamaica and was admitted to the U.S. as a non-immigrant. He married a U.S. citizen and adjusted to lawful permanent resident status in 2009. However, in separate criminal cases in 2013, Mr. Day was convicted of two substantive counts of transporting one ounce or more of cocaine and one conspiracy count of transporting more than five pounds of marijuana into Virginia, all in violation of a few Virginia laws. The substantive drug trafficking occurred in March 2013, and the conspiracy offense began in August 2013. In total, he was sentenced to 19 years incarceration, with six years to be actually served in prison. DHS eventually initiated removal proceedings and charged Mr. Day with removability for having been convicted of a CIMT within five years of admission and for having been convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct. It appears that DHS also charged Mr. Day with other removability provisions, but it appears that the IJ didn't sustain those charges. Perhaps that was due to 11th Circuit decisions like Gordon v. U.S. Attorney General, laying down the law for aggravated felony drug trafficking removability offenses. Who knows? I'm just deciphering a footnote here without citation. Anyway, Mr. Day moved to terminate the CIMT removability allegations as well, but the IJ and the BIA denied that portion of the motion. After all, the BIA held generally in Matter of Corn, 1997, that drug trafficking offenses are CIMTs. Up to the 11th Circuit it goes. 
And while both CIMT type removability provisions have various elements, this decision here comes down to simply whether the Virginia convictions match the federal definition of a CIMT, not the other elements required of the removability provisions alleged here. And remember as well, as the 11th Circuit does in a footnote, that under BIA and some circuit case law, a conspiracy crime is a CIMT if the underlying conspired offense is a CIMT. That's the law that's being applied here. CIMTs, as we know, are weird and amorphous, but in the 11th Circuit, as pretty much everywhere, they describe state convictions that either involve fraud or that are inherently base, vile, or depraved. That's the general rule, although there are a lot of exceptions discussed on this podcast pretty much every other week. Drug trafficking doesn't involve fraud, so the question is, is it inherently vile, base, or reprehensible? It is, said the 11th Circuit. The least culpable conduct criminalized by the statute requires that the defendant have the, quote, intent to distribute to others the illegal substance he has transported into Virginia. The intent to traffic an illegal substance satisfies the mens rea requirement for a CIMT, end quote. So the statutes have the required mental state. As to moral reprehensibility, flat out in the 11th Circuit, quote, Transporting an illegal substance with the intent to distribute it is inherently base, vile, or depraved conduct. End quote. Quoting statements made in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1956, the 11th Circuit relayed that, quote, few criminal acts are more reprehensible than the act of abetting drug addiction by engaging in the illicit narcotic and marijuana trafficking. End quote. For the counter-argument, and at least with marijuana trafficking, check out Walcock v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit and discussed on episode 87 of the podcast. In any event, the Eleventh Circuit, quote, Virginia, like many states, continues to criminalize possession of large amounts of marijuana, end quote, even if it has decriminalized marijuana in some other contexts. The Eleventh Circuit did not believe it probative that Virginia may criminalize the transport of drugs that are not also listed on the Federal Controlled Substance List, an argument that we've seen before on the podcast in the CIMT context. And that's because, quote, Virginia, by listing a particular substance in one of its schedules, has determined that the substance has a high potential for abuse and poses a risk to public health if it is left uncontrolled, end quote. To the 11th Circuit, it doesn't matter that the federal government hasn't done so as well. To be clear, though, and as we always discuss, that argument has legs if the analysis concerned the aggravated felony drug trafficking or law relating to a controlled substance removability provisions, just not in the CIMT context to the 11th Circuit. The court summarily rejected Mr. Day's argument that the CIMT definition is unconstitutionally vague and upheld his removal. But here's a quote I don't hate. Echoing the Ninth Circuit's logic, at least from Walcott, the Eleventh Circuit stated that, quote, whatever might be said about personal use of small amounts of marijuana, Mr. Day has not shown a corresponding change in society's views about trafficking marijuana in larger amounts, end quote. The implication being, though, that if and when that occurs, when society's views change, decisions like this might come out differently. Or put another way, the CIMT definition is a moving definition that changes based on society's values, which of course are always up for debate and always changing. And that is Davey, U.S. Attorney General.
Next up is Rivera Vega v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 8th, 2022. This is a big, big old bad case for non-citizens all around. And it's really long, just a heads up. It's primarily about the permanent inadmissibility provision at INA Section 212A9C. So yeah, it's complicated. Mr. Rivera Vega is from Mexico, entered the U.S. unlawfully, and was deported in 1991. He re-entered the U.S. unlawfully a few weeks later, and then remained in the U.S. As we've so often discussed, Congress passed IRIRA in 1996, and it became effective in 1997, constituting a pretty big overhaul of the immigration system in the U.S. As part of the new law, Congress added INA Section 212A9C, which among other things, makes permanently inadmissible anyone who enters the U.S. unlawfully after being removed previously. DHS can waive the inadmissibility, but the waiver is entirely discretionary and can only even potentially be applied for once the non-citizen has lived outside the U.S. for 10 years. It's a very harsh bar. In that same law, Congress implemented INA Section 245A, whereby non-citizens cannot adjust to lawful permanent resident status in the U.S. even if married to a U.S. citizen, if their last entry into the U.S. was unlawful. But Congress also wrote in a grace period, INA Section 245I. Under that law, and I'm simplifying a bit, if a non-citizen had an immigrant visa petition like an I-130 or an I-140 filed on his or her behalf before April 30th, 2001, they can still adjust to lawful permanent resident status in the future, at least based on an immediate relative petition, even if they initially entered the U.S. without authorization. As many of you know, Section 245I gets quite complicated, but that's the gist. Enter Mr. Rivera Vega. He appears to have applied to adjust status under the old Adjustment of Status Law, and even received a waiver of his inadmissibility under INA Section 212A9A. That's a different 10-year bar applicable to non-citizens who have been removed from the U.S. previously. Note, not those who then also re-enter unlawfully. Again, that's Section 212A9C. After the Adjustment of Status application had been pending for 18 years. 18 years! And after granting that one inadmissibility waiver, USCIS denied Mr. Rivera-Vega's adjustment application. USCIS denied for three reasons. First, it held that DHS had reinstated Mr. Rivera-Vega's 1991 order of deportation before he applied to adjust to lawful permanent resident status. That was flat-out incorrect. DHS had not done so. Next, USCIS held that itself, USCIS, had not granted the Section 212A9A waiver. That too was incorrect, it had granted the waiver. But third, USCIS realized that if Section 212A9C applied, Mr. Rivera Vega was permanently barred from adjusting to LPR status unless and until he waited outside the U.S. for 10 years and then sought permission to reapply. USCIS held that the provision applied to Mr. Rivera-Vega and denied his adjustment application for that reason, too. Alerted to the chaos, DHS arrested Mr. Rivera-Vega and did in fact then reinstate the 1991 final order. Mr. Vega was deemed not to have a reasonable fear of persecution or torture in Mexico, his attorney did not appear at the IJ hearing to review the no reasonable fear finding, and the IJ agreed with the asylum officer. Mr. Rivera-Vega was removed to Mexico the next day, in June 2019, where he presumably remains. 
Then, USCIS reopened Mr. Rivera-Vega's adjustment of status application, but deemed it abandoned because he'd been removed from the United States. Mr. Rivera-Vega petitioned for review DHS's reinstatement conduct, but doesn't appear to have sued USCIS for denying his adjustment of status application in federal district court. The Ninth Circuit received a mess of a case on petition for review, which, reading the tone of this decision, the Ninth Circuit appears to believe is of USCIS's own making. But it did not save Mr. Rivera-Vega. No matter the flaws, the Ninth Circuit held that DHS properly reinstated Mr. Rivera-Vega's 1991 deportation order because Mr. Rivera-Vega was indeed permanently inadmissible under INA Section 212A9CIII and thus ineligible to adjust to lawful permanent resident status. See, in the Ninth Circuit, if a non-citizen files an adjustment of status application with USCIS, and even if the non-citizen could be subject to reinstatement of his prior final removal order, USCIS, quote, is required to consider whether to exercise its discretion in the non-citizen's favor before it can proceed with reinstatement proceedings, end quote. So that's a pretty favorable procedural rule, and it applied to Mr. Rivera-Vega here. Even more favorable, that means if USCIS, quote, mistakenly concluded that Mr. Rivera-Vega was statutorily ineligible for adjustment of status, end quote, the Ninth Circuit must vacate the reinstatement order. Pretty important stuff, as there are not many other ways to challenge DHS's decision to reinstate final orders of deportation or removal. But again, to the Ninth Circuit here. Even if the first two reasons given by USCIS to deny the adjustment of status application were plainly incorrect, the Ninth Circuit agreed with the third reason. INA Section 212A9CIII is a permanent bar that can't even potentially be waived unless and until the non-citizen spends 10 years abroad. Mr. Rivera-Vega, of course, knew this, and so he argued that the permanent bar couldn't apply to him, because he was deported and re-entered well before the permanent bar even went into effect in 1997. The unwaivable permanent bar, harsh as it is, should not apply to him retroactively, so he argued. The Ninth Circuit disagreed. Even though there is a presumption at federal law against retroactive application of legislation, and even though Congress did not make clear that the statute should apply retroactively. To the Ninth Circuit panel, the permanent bar that came into effect in 1997 did not, quote, attach new legal consequences to events completed before its enactment, end quote. And so, it could apply to Mr. Rivera-Vega's actions completed in 1991. To the court, Mr. Rivera-Vega doesn't have a legal right to adjust to LPR status. It's a discretionary form of relief. And he didn't apply for the relief before IRIRA went into effect in 97. Also, the Ninth Circuit believes that Mr. Rivera-Vega, quote, is not being penalized for illegally re-entering in 1991, but for unlawfully staying here after IRIRA's effective date, end quote. So by the Ninth Circuit's reasoning here and elsewhere in the decision, it appears that it's holding that Mr. Rivera-Vega would not have triggered the Section 212A9C bar if he had departed the U.S. after 91 but before IRIRA, but that he did trigger it by remaining the U.S. after 1997 when IRIRA went into effect. Also, apparently the Supreme Court used a similar logic to find the reinstatement statute retroactive in its 2006 decision Fernandez Vargas v. Gonzalez, so that's a problem for Mr. Rivera-Vega's argument. 
Plus, according to the Ninth Circuit, this reading, quote, dovetails with Congress's intent to toe a harder line, end quote, when it passed IRIRA. In so holding, and in a footnote, the Ninth Circuit disregarded a footnote from another panel holding otherwise in 2013. It also is directly contradictory to former INS's own memo issued just before IRIRA went into effect in anticipation of this very issue, something Mr. Rivera Vega or individuals like him may have relied upon. Also addressed by the Ninth Circuit in a footnote. The court concluded by finding that Mr. Rivera Vega was not denied his right to counsel at his reasonable fear review hearing before an IJ, deeming the issue largely decided later on in Orozco Lopez v. Garland, episode 70 of the podcast. Essentially, non-citizens have the right to be notified of their right to counsel at reasonable fear review hearings and given the opportunity to obtain one, but that right is limited by the regulatory requirement that IJs complete the hearing within 10 days of DHS's no reasonable fear finding. Here, Mr. Rivera Vega had an attorney at the initial reasonable fear interview, and he received notice of his IJ hearing with information about his right to counsel three days before the IJ hearing. This sufficed to the Ninth Circuit. Plus, it appears that Mr. Rivera Vega did have an attorney. The attorney just didn't show up. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the no reasonable fear finding on the merits and denied the petition for review. It's a very long one, but one more non-citizen adverse thing that I must note. The Supreme Court's Patel decision strikes horribly here. Despite the Ninth Circuit stating multiple times in this decision that USCIS was flat-out wrong on the facts when it denied the adjustment of status application and concluded that DHS had already reinstated that final order of deportation, and on another matter, the Ninth Circuit still believed that Patel meant that it lacked jurisdiction over these, quote, erroneous factual findings, end quote. It would appear that USCIS now has carte blanche to make completely incorrect factual findings when adjudicating adjustment of status applications and will still avoid federal court review, a fear that Justice Gorsuch and the dissent could not stomach in Patel. And that is Rivera Vega v. Garland. To conclude, we have Brito v. Garland published by the Seventh Circuit on July 7, 2022. This decision is about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Judge Jackson Akawumi dissented. Mr. Brito is from Mexico and appears to have been placed in withholding-only proceedings following reinstatement of a final order of removal. In support of his claim, Mr. Brito explained that he, quote, had fled Mexico because of threats he received from the Familia Michoacan cartel, end quote. He was abducted at gunpoint in 2013, but at some point he escaped, and he, quote, used a small boat to slip away from the cartel's grasp. As he fled, he saw bullets hit the water around him, end quote. The cartel ransacked his home looking for him, and so he and his wife fled to the U.S. Mr. Brito brought an expert to testify about how powerful the Familia Michoacan cartel is, and that Mr. Brito would be at risk of torture by the cartel if he returned to Mexico anywhere. The IJ denied withholding of removal, but granted protection under the CAT. So unless Familia Michoacan went away, and DHS brought Mr. Brito back into court to prove it, Mr. Brito would be remaining in the U.S. But DHS appealed, and the BIA overturned the IJ in what appears to be a very fact-intensive decision. 
so Mr. Brito has now lost, and he would be removed, so he petitioned for review to the Seventh Circuit. Here, in a split decision, the Seventh Circuit agreed with the BIA and not the IJ. Mr. Brito first argued, perhaps expectedly for such a case, that the BIA did not apply clear error review in reviewing and overturning the IJ's fact findings. The dead fish standard of review from the First Circuit. But the Seventh Circuit did not agree with Mr. Brito. To the court, the BIA explained why it was that the IJ clearly erred in concluding that the cartel was interested in Mr. Brito specifically, and why the IJ clearly erred in finding that the Mexican government would acquiesce or consent to the torture feared. Whether the BIA's findings were correct or not isn't the point. The BIA applied the correct standard of review to the Seventh Circuit. If, for example, the BIA doesn't address key factual findings made by the IJ, or gives more weight to others, or fails to explain details of why the IJ erred, that might show that the BIA was applying an incorrect standard of review. But that's not what happened here. Ultimately, quote, a conclusion that a decision maker rested a finding on speculation is not an uncommon basis for clear error reversal, end quote. Remember that one, practitioners, when it's you challenging an IJ's factual findings rather than DHS. Mr. Brito also made a creative argument that I've heard whispered in government corners before, that the three-member BIA panel lacked authority to rule on his case because, quote, the board that decided his appeal consisted of two temporary members who served beyond their six-month terms of appointment, end quote, in violation of the regulations. Going for the jugular. But the Seventh Circuit rejected the argument, because the Attorney General had reappointed those members to an additional six months by the time of the BIA's decision, here. But if the Attorney General had not, seems like the argument might have legs. Finally, even though DHS missed their filing deadline and filed an untimely brief with the BIA eight days later, said the Seventh Circuit, the BIA did not err in accepting that untimely brief and granting DHS's motion to accept the untimely filing. Quote, We know of no legal prohibition on the BIA's choosing to accept an untimely brief in these circumstances. End quote. Under the regulations, the BIA could have dismissed DHS's appeal, but it was not required to do so. So Mr. Brito lost his case. To the dissent. In dissent, Judge Jackson Akawumi believed that, due to the cursory reasoning provided by the BIA to accept DHS's late brief and grant DHS's motion to accept the late filing, the BIA's actions in Mr. Brito's case, quote, risk creating different standards for non-citizens in DHS, where non-citizens must strictly comply with rules, but DHS has the leeway to treat rules as guidelines and avoid the dismissal of its appeals, end quote. After all, said the dissent, DHS's motion appeared to lack supporting evidence and was expressly opposed by Mr. Brito. Judge Jackson Akawumi, who was on President Biden's shortlist of Supreme Court appointment this year, also expressed dismay at the finding in a 2016 University of Pennsylvania Law Review article that concluded that, quote, the BIA is more likely to reverse the decisions of generous judges when the government appeals, but is not more likely to reverse the decisions of harsh judges when immigrants appeal, end quote. Judge Jackson Akawumi believed that's something that circuit courts should consider. And that is Brito v. Garland. So there you have it. 
You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.